0: To the river I am going, bringing sins I cannot bear. Come and cleanse me. Come, forgive me. Lord, I need to meet you there. Some of you have come in this morning with that already very much on your mind. Others of you coming in this morning That's the furthest thing from your mind. But I hope before you leave this morning, you will understand in a new and profound way that the Lord longs to meet you there. Well, one of the towering figures in the Old Testament is that of David. Most of us can't think about David David, without thinking almost simultaneously of two of his contemporaries that we associate with him. David and Goliath. And perhaps David and Bathsheba. I mean, could there be any wider difference between those two? The giant... And the woman, the evil tyrant, and the one I believe to be the innocent victim. And yet, each of them brings David to a place of encounter with God that would reveal his heart. When Goliath comes across his life, it's rather early in David's life. He's young, he's unknown and untested. When Bathsheba comes into his life, he's in his mature years. In the prime of his life, he has endured hard testings and has been proven to be a loyal friend, a wise king, and a courageous leader. In facing Goliath, he faced him as a person of prayer, David lived from the inside out. He was far more impressed with the invisible God than he was with the visible giant. In his encounter with Bathsheba, he recovers his identity as a person of prayer, as we'll see in a few moments. Though he is now scarred from battle, he's experienced failure and disappointment. But God's no less a part of his life, but now his life is multi-layered. You have to peel back the layers and untangle the complexity of guilt and grace that's his. Much, I suspect, like your life and my life. The story is told in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. That will not be the text of our focus but rather the lead-in to the text. But I want to give that context so that you can check this out. It's in the spring of the year when kings go to battle, we're told in Scripture. But David, by now, is a well-established sovereign, a well-established king. He has no need to prove himself any longer. And he almost seems to the reader to be withdrawing from the page to the point where you would question is, does he have some anemia of soul anymore? He finds himself on the rooftop of his palace, a vantage point from which he can see a number of courtyards of villas around him. And in one of those courtyards, he sees a woman bathing. To him, it is a woman of extraordinary beauty, Upon inquiry, he finds out that she is married. Her husband is named Uriah. Uriah is one of his loyal subjects who, in fact, is off fighting his battles in some other place. But David sends for her, nevertheless. He takes her, and then he discards her, sends her back home. The affair is over and done. But then David receives notification that Bathsheba is pregnant. And now David has a problem. But David is good at handling problems, and he's figured out a way to handle this one. He issues a leave for Uriah that he might return from battle and have some time at home to be with his wife and then none would be the wiser. What he hadn't counted on was the loyalty of Uriah who with his men that he was commanding out still on the for, out in the, in the uh, front lines he would not enjoy that time with his wife instead he slept with the guards, the other military people at home. And so David had another problem. And I don't know, in the back of my mind, the way it works, I was wondering whether Uriah wondered whether something wasn't quite right here. But David writes a note to his commanding general, Joab, And in the note, he says that he is to take Uriah and put him in the front line and then pull back the soldiers. And Joab would know of the intrigue, and the point of the intrigue was to bring about the end of Uriah. So David had solved the problem the time of mourning is complete, David once again takes Bathsheba, this time into the palace to marry her. Now, if we're reading the story of David for the first time, we're not prepared for a David like this. In fact, what began is just a lustful whim developed into an enormous sex and murder crime how does such sin happen i would suggest is with most sins gradually unobtrusively and almost unnoticed but do you find yourself in that story anywhere either in fact or in imagination. Oh, the precise details in the specific circumstances will be different, of course. But the sin and its recurrence is surely there. This is where the story takes what Eugene Peterson calls a surprising gospel turn. David is about to learn that God is in hot pursuit of him. And that pursuit comes in the form of David's pastor, whose name is Nathan. The pastor shows up, but the Bible says God sent him. And he sent him with a sermon, but the sermon was couched as a simple story. David, I want to tell you a story about two guys one even you would call rich. He has many flocks and many herds and many friends. And some of those friends he's having over for dinner tonight, but he doesn't want to take one of his lambs. There's a poor fellow down the street on the other side that has but one lamb. In fact, it's more of a pet than a source for food. And with a callousness, the rich guy takes the lamb from this one and offers it up to his friends for dinner. God knows the heart of David. (laughs) He knows how much David cares about sheep. And David is drawn into the story. And he is drawn in and angered with every word that he hears. And he rises up. A man like that deserves to die. David's pastor turns to him and says, David, friend, you... Are that man? Something about the gospel that becomes intensely personal. You are the man, you are the woman, I am the man. Gospel is never really about someone else. It's about you. It's about me. It's never just truth in general, but truth in specific. It's never simply about ideas and culture and conditions. But it's always about actual persons and actual pain and actual trouble and actual sin. It's about you. It's about me. Who you are and what you've done. Who I am and what I've done. You see, it's so easy, isn't it? And it's common to lose this focus. To let the gospel be just about general pronouncements. And to get us in religious indignation at the sins of others. Like the dear lady who met the pastor at the door of the church and said, "Wonderful sermon this morning, pastor, everything you said applies to somebody I know." <laughs> but you see, that's what David was doing as he's listening to this sermon about someone else. He's worked up about someone else's sin, and with each word that Nathan speaks, he becomes more religiously indignant feeling sorry and seething with anger. But pitying and judging, we can indulge endlessly and it not make a particle of difference. God uses Nathan's simple story to get around, uh, uh, around David's defenses. David realizes that he is the one in the gospel bead. He is the one in the gospel focus. And addressed personally, he is broken. And he answers personally. I have sinned against the Lord. Chapter 12, verse 13. You want to check it out. He abandons all generalities. No more is he giving out opinions of others' lives. He realizes his position before God as a sinner. And for right now at least, it's God and him alone. A person in trouble. A person who needs help. A person who needs God. David recovers in one moment his awareness of God and the awareness of his sin. And out of that double awareness, he prays a prayer that we call Psalm 51. If you have your Bibles, that's where I would like you to turn. Psalm 51. It's page 405 in the Chairback Bible. The words will be on the screen, but some words will not be. The superscription to the psalm reads like this. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So as we go through this psalm, this isn't some fanciful interpretation of a penitential psalm. This is that which God intended us to know as we go into the psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Have mercy on me, O God. Blot out my transgressions, my iniquity, my sin. He scours the whole Hebrew vocabulary for sin. He calls it first transgressions crossing a boundary into forbidden territory. Sometimes we do that with the strength of a long jumper, and we go as far into that territory as we can. Other times in our lives, we know the boundary is here, and my big toe is just over that line. But in God's sight, Either one is over the boundary, and either one is in-your-face rebellion. And David acknowledges that transgression. It's sin upon sin upon sin upon sin that he has committed over and over again. And if you don't believe him, just look at his diary. It's just a journal of all of these things, crossing into forbidden territory. But he's concerned not only about his transgressions. He's concerned about his iniquity. The pollution that clings to him because of them. The defilement that is his. The twisted self-centeredness that comes as a result. Yea, the disease of his soul. And then a third word for sin. Just translated sin, missing the mark which is just a polite way of saying he was a lousy shot. (laughs) Implying that sin is just as much a blunder as it is a crime. But David isn't content just to leave it as transgressions and iniquity as sin. He owns it all personally. It's my transgression, my iniquity, my sin. And see, that's hard for us to do. Because I want to say, but that's not really me. That was just the stage I was going through. If you knew the kids I had to raise, or if you knew the parents I have to live with, or if you knew my husband, or if you knew my wife, or if you knew my job, or you knew my boss, or on infinitum. David cries out, blot out, my transgressions, my iniquities. He knows there are bats flying around on the dark side of him and of my sin. And then he scours also the vocabulary for ways to express what he wants God to do. Blot out my transgressions. And we read that and we don't catch the impact of it. If you were to read the Bible from Genesis on through, you would find out this is the first time that the word blot out is used of, somebody, or of something other than people. It's always God blotting out this or you blot out these people. And David is saying now for the first time in the Bible, God, please don't blot me out, blot out my transgressions. Now, we don't use blotters today in the way in which we did in previous days of pen and ink and the blotter. Those of us that still write with pencil use an eraser, perhaps. But probably we most commonly identify with the delete key on the computer. But this is really an accountant's term, and he's asking the Lord not to consolidate his debt or to help him manage his debt. He's asking the Lord to blot it out, to eliminate it. It's a huge request of God. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity. In Hebrew, the word for wash is closely related to the word for trample or to beat. And it has the idea of the old washing machine with the agitator in it or the the washboard. Do whatever you have to do, Lord, to cleanse me from that pollution within. And then cleanse me from my sin. This was a technical word when a person was... uh, was diseased with what was considered then to be a contagious disease, the priest would come with a hyssop plant and sprinkle, in that particular case, water, but sometimes, uh, for other things, blood on an object or on the person, and then pronounce that they are clean. Pronounce me clean from my sin rather audacious claims for David to make to God. On what basis would he ask for something like that? Back in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, your covenant goodness and faithfulness, your Hasid, your loyal love, according to your great compassion, I grew up being the age that I am with the King James, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. I've got lots of sin, Lord. I'm so grateful you have a multitude of tender mercies. That's the basis. What do you know about your God? most important thing you can know about God if you are a repentant sinner is that God is gracious, compassionate and of abundant mercy. And the God you have so deeply offended loves you intensely. And with those cries on his lips He pours out his confession, beginning in verse 3. For I know my transgressions. Before Nathan I knew about them, but now I really know them. And my sin is always before me. You know that when you have some particular unconfessed sin in your life. It's always before you. It's before you when you wake up in the morning. It's before you when you go to bed at night. It's always there as an accusing presence. The message paraphrase says My sins are staring me down. Powerful image. Because of that, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right in your verdict when you speak and justified when you pass judgment, whatever that judgment would be. Now, he isn't denying that he hasn't violated Bathsheba and Uriah and the other soldiers who lost their lives but in in measuring the enormity of his sin, he measures it at the highest level. In New Testament terms, for all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The prodigal, upon his return, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And then he realizes that his failure is not just failure. He is morally impotent. Surely I was sinful at birth. He realizes this was no freak event. It's entirely in my character. Always lurking just under the surface, waiting to come out at any time, is this pollution. You desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. But God, I now realize there's a huge gulf between what you desire and what I've just confessed. And so from that confession, he petitions God, cleanse me with that hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Remember that stuff? (laughs) Remember, David didn't live in Denver. He lived in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem doesn't often see snow. So it made an impression upon David's life. Isaiah would say later, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Snow. I wonder if he read David. But David wasn't about to do anything halfway. I don't want to be as white as snow. I want to be whiter than snow. He had become deaf to joy. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Another translation, let them dance. Again, not doing anything halfway. Hide your face, not from me, Lord. That's my biggest fear. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. He realizes he needs more than pardon. He needs purity. And he needs God for that too. And so in verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God. Create, the same word that's used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Rarely used in the Old Testament, but each time that it is used, each and every time that it's used, God is the subject. He's asking God to do this powerful work in his life the most powerful, God-activating word he could use, he used. And renew a steadfast, a resolute, a constant spirit within me, for I'm sure going to need that. Oh, don't cast me from your presence. I think the deepest fear of God is the thought that his sin would keep him from fellowship with his God. Or take your Holy Spirit from me. It's by means of that Spirit that you created me. With that Spirit you equipped me and enabled me to take on this task of being the king over Israel. Oh, don't, don't, don't take that from me. Let me again experience the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. If I'm going to make it, I need more than a reluctant or grudging spirit. I need to become the kind of person who willingly and eagerly obeys. And with that in mind, He makes some promises to God. We've got to be careful here because it isn't, God, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you, and then we'll be even. It's, I won't be able to help myself. I promise this because I know this is going to be true of me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. I'm not just in this for myself. Others need to know the merciful, compassionate ways of God with repentant sinners. The superscription of the psalm reads, To the director of music, David is now aware that this encounter now would be read as it met with God's mercy, would be read and sung as prayers of God's people all through the time of the Hebrew Scriptures and right up into our day. So the churches that are more liturgically based than ours, during the season of Lent, there is no more prominent psalm that is read than Psalm 51. And 3,000 years later, God is still answering David's prayer in this verse. And sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open the lips that my conscience has shamed into silence, and my mouth will declare your praise. It will declare your praise to you, and will declare your praise to others, that others may know of your mercy. I want to live not only to your praise, I want to live to your pleasure. You don't delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings for burnt offering's sake. There's no place before God for hypocritical worship. The sacrifices of God, the sacrifice you desire, and the sacrifice that I offer are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart. And then in the understatement of the psalm. "O God, you will not despise. And Isaiah later will pick up the theme. This is the one God speaking. This is the one I esteem. He or she who is humble and contrite in spirit. And trembles at my word. The psalm concludes, in your good pleasure make Zion prosper, build up the walls of Jerusalem, then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you, then bulls will be offered on your altar. How do we take this psalm and bring it home in application to our situation? And I pondered the title for this message, others looked at me rather strangely when I suggested the title, Clean. Perhaps following that theme, come clean, be made clean, and stay clean. We come clean when we own our sin, primarily in this context, before God when we own it as sin before him. And then when we recognize our absolute need of mercy, to recognize that there is absolutely nothing that I could ever do had I a thousand lifetimes to atone for my own sin no number of attendant or no attendance at numbers of worship services or service within that church building or doing any other kinds of righteous activities i must recognize my absolute need of mercy but recognizing the need and doing something about it are two different things and so i cast myself upon god's abundant mercy I acknowledge I have no leg to stand on other than his revealed character. Come clean. Be made clean. Ask for his forgiveness. And ask for purity. As we'll see in a moment, the basis for this asking is that the price, the awful price of the forgiveness has been paid. But now, following David, we ask earnestly. And we ask confidently. And we ask frequently. But we must ask. We must ask. And then stay clean. Living to bring God praise. Lord, if you open my lips, this is what I'm going to do with them and do that. Tell others of the gracious mercy of God to repentant sinners like yourself. Live for his praise. Live for his pleasure to offer again and again a broken and contrite heart. Sweetly broken, holy, His. And then third, to promote God's cause. Those last couple of verses that I slipped over—the walls of Jerusalem or the walls of the temple—we are in this day the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's passion is for His people, and those who by God's grace will become his people. And so caring about their needs and about their nurture, the things that he cares about. One of the best ways I know to stay clean is to be about the things that break the heart of God. Lord, have mercy on me. sing that as we prepare for the Lord's table.